Welcome to Quirky, Creepy, and Freaky, a podcast where I tell you about wonky animal facts. I'm your host, Olivia, and each week I will share with you a different weird fact from the animal kingdom. And a couple of things before we get started. One, next week I am going to be starting a second job with adjuncting at a college nearby, so I'm going to try to keep up with the weekly episodes, but there is a chance that we will switch to every other week for the semester. I will keep you posted on that and let you know if the frequency of episodes has to change at all, because it is just me doing this. So, yeah, I'll let you know. We might have to go to every other week. Well, you will know if that has to happen. Next week will really be the trial week, so we'll see. And then before we get to the episode for this week, some exciting real-life animal quirkiness going on around here lately. A stellar sea eagle has shown up around eastern Maine, and weirdly enough, it decided to hang out in the harbor around the lab that I work at. So I actually got to see it this past week, and it was really cool because it is a ginormous bird. It has a wingspan of about eight feet. So even though I didn't get the chance to see it fly, even just seeing it sit in the top of the tree, it's it's just ginormous. Um, So that was amazing to have the chance to see it. And the extra crazy thing about it is that there are only 4,000 stellar sea eagles thereabout in the wild. And they live in northeastern Asia, mostly around Russia. So this is a very lost bird. Over the course of the... Last year, it was seen, I think it was in Alaska, and then an unconfirmed sighting in Texas and Canada. So it's really been making a round-trip cruise of North America and is the only stellar sea eagle that has ever been recorded in North America. So we have no idea where this eagle is going. I don't know if anyone really knows why it showed up over here at all, but it's pretty cool that it's here. And the nice thing about it is that it comes from a cold weather place and now it's hanging out in a cold weather place. So we know it at least isn't gonna die from the elements, so that's cool. And now from here, we'll see how long it decides to hang out in the area. It's been here for almost a month now, a little less than, and we'll see where it goes from here. And now on to our regularly scheduled programming. If you find snakes to be a little bit scary, you will be super pumped to find out that there are snakes that can fly and are very appropriately called flying snakes. Technically speaking, to make it a little bit better for you, they do technically only glide. They don't actually fly on their own. There are quite a few different gliding animals, but flying snakes are the only limbless uh, gliding animal, so that's pretty nifty. But no worries, all five species of flying snake live in jungles throughout Southeast Asia, so you are unlikely to come into contact with one unless you go over to Southeast Asia, then maybe. Um, With the widest ranging flying snake species being able to be found from West India all the way to China and Vietnam, they belong to the family Colubridae. So if you remember all the way back to episode two, This is the largest family of snakes and is also home to the venomous and poisonous Rhabdophis keelback snake that we had talked about in that episode. 
So flying snakes have a wide range of prey from rodents, lizards, frogs, birds, and bats. What each of the snakes eats is going to depend on where they are in its range and where that species lives, as well as the size of the snake. The smallest species, Chrysopelia pileus, also known as the banded or twin barred tree snake, only gets to about two feet long, which is about two-thirds of a meter. The longest of the flying snakes, Chrysopelia ornata, which is the golden or ornate flying snake, grows to be about four feet long, so it would track that the smaller two-foot-long snake is going to be eating smaller prey than the four-foot-long snake, but I couldn't find specific prey information on each of the separate species. Studies have shown that the smaller snakes glide better than the longer snakes, and yet the flying snake that is known to be the best glider is not the smallest. It's not the banded flying snake. It is the paradise tree snake, Chrysopelia paradisi. Granted, the paradise tree snake doesn't really get that much bigger. It's still a pretty small snake, but it is in that midpoint area growing to about three feet long, right around one meter. Fun fact, this flying snake, according to the sources I have read, is apparently a fairly popular animal in the European pet trade. And at least as a comparison between these guys and the keelback snakes from a venom standpoint, the flying snakes would make for a better pet, or at least one that is less likely to kill you. Flying snakes are only mildly venomous and are not considered to be dangerous to humans, only to their prey. There are still a few cases out there of flying snakes sending people to the hospital, but overall, they're not on the official list of medically significant snakes, so if you were to get bit by one, obviously monitor the bite, but you, for the most part, don't really have to worry about it. So onto their gliding. By gliding, the snakes are using an initial freefall in order to generate the bulk of their lift, which makes it for a very energy efficient way for them to move between the trees. If you want to see videos of them flying, there are plenty of YouTube videos and it's actually pretty nifty to watch. You should definitely do it. And it's very easy to see just the different steps in how they prepare themselves for the flight and then, you know, their ensuing flight. When the snake is preparing, they move to the edge of the branch and then dangle there in a bit of a J shape. And if you do watch the videos, you can see as they're doing this, it looks like they're doing some sort of mental calculations just to see how high or, you know, how they have to jump, what they have to do, kind of a mental preparation stage. Then they launch themselves off of the branch and then they just drop for a little bit. While they are in this drop, they form a bit of an S shape in the lower half of the body while they're also flattening themselves by sucking in their abdomen and spreading out and flattening out their rib cage. When they flatten themselves, they can actually increase their width up to two times their normal body size. This creates more surface area to catch air and acts as a full body wing to help them catch the air and stop that ballistic drop. So other animals like flying squirrels or flying lizards have uh, skin webbing between their legs or between their fingers that act as the parachute to help them slow and control their flight and catch all that lift that they need. 
but since the snake does not have legs or fingers to have skin in between to create their parachute and their full body flight suit, uh, they flatten their body to create that same effect. Um, during flight, the snakes undulate, which helps to stabilize their flight and keep them upright, which makes for a safer flight for the snake. If you are maintaining an upright position, it means you're not just tumbling through the air. The snakes are often flying between trees, so they, generally speaking, aren't flying super far, but they are capable of gliding to a distance up to 100 meters. When they flatten themselves out, there are quite a few things happening here as a result. The major thing is that it creates the wing, as I had talked about, to increase the surface area, and it reduces their profile. Flattening themselves out uh, reduces their drag or air resistance, so it minimizes the amount of friction with the air that the snake experiences, which helps it to glide farther and um, helps keep it from slowing down in the air. Flying snakes are also not a perfectly flat shape once their ribs are, you know, kind of splayed. The edges of their ribs form a bit of a lip on the edges of the snake, so it gives, the, it gives their bottom part a bit of an upside-down C-shape. The C-shape helps to deflect the airstream under the snake downwards, and this is actually a much stronger effect than if the snake was to be perfectly flat. So being able to shove the air down like that helps to generate and increase their lift. Generating as much lift as possible is crucial to their ability to fly and fly far because the more lift they have, the sooner their angle of the glide will decrease, and which also means the sooner that their initial drop will stop and they'll level out, which allows them to glide farther and, as I said, settle out from that free fall at the beginning of the glide, allowing them to gain distance. What is also pretty cool about this is that with all of their lift generation, and depending on the initial angles that they jump off at, their forward speed can increase up to six times their initial takeoff velocity. There are a lot of benefits to transportation by gliding, one is that it saves a whole bunch of energy. If they didn't have the ability to glide, they would then only be able to travel from tree to tree by crawling down the tree they're on, slithering across the ground, then going up another tree. Their scale structure on their bellies does make them very good tree climbers, but going up and down those trees still takes a lot of energy. With the ability to glide, then now all they have to do is jump from one tree and then physics and fluid dynamics takes over and carries them over to the next tree. So for the snake, it's a much more passive mode of transportation than moving themselves and it allows them to uh, pretty much use that change from kinetic energy or that change from potential energy to kinetic energy to carry them from tree to tree. Saves a lot more energy this way than just slithering around all over the place. The ability to glide is also overall a lot safer for the snake. Flying snakes don't really have a whole lot of predators, but part of that is because their gliding from tree to tree helps them to avoid interactions with potential predators. So because of this, their predators are mostly larger birds and other snakes, um, but they also don't really have land-based predators, so that's nifty. Gliding also makes potential accidental descents, or even purposeful ones, a lot safer. 
If they happen to jump and miss the tree that they're aiming for, or if they just happen to fall out of the tree that they were on, being able to glide slows their descent and allows them to land safely on the ground and minimize potentially life-threatening injuries. Many animals do have a certain amount of impact proofing and bounceability, but still only up to a certain drop height. There's only so far you can fall from and remain uninjured. But if you can glide, then you have the ability to fall from just about any height and not sustain any injuries upon impact. Surprisingly enough, flying snakes are not considered to be vulnerable or endangered or anything at all or anything like that, and all five species are classified as least concern. Only one or two species, the paradise tree snake and the ornate flying snake, seem to be really well studied though and... Um, but for one species, uh, Chrysopelia pelialis, they gave it a least concern classification, but we don't have enough information to know if the population is stable or trending downward or even trending upward. Um, fortunately, though, there do seem to be very few threats to these species, but the primary ones would be vulnerability to deforestation and habitat fragmentation, which is a very common threat for a lot of forest-dwelling animals. It has also been stated that for the ornate flying snake, um, they sometimes face the same fate as many harmless snakes and are often killed in plantations because it's mistaken for a more venomous species. As always, it would be more helpful for more studies and more population surveys. In the meantime, though, we can keep working on understanding how they glide as well as they do, and their ability to glide really truly showcases their ability to fall with style. Thank you for listening to today's episode and witnessing that slightly cheesy sound off, and be sure to tune in to next week's episode. Please rate and review on iTunes, and you can also find the podcast on Amazon Music and Audible and Podbean. There are now a couple of options to help support this podcast. You can share us with everybody that you know that could use some more animal facts in their life because we know that everybody can use more animal facts in their life. And you can also become a patron on Patreon. You can find the link for that in the description below. When you become a Patreon member, you gain access to all of the Patreon content, which one day will include all sorts of bonus episodes and maybe some exclusive merch one day. You can find the podcast on Instagram, so give it a follow at Quirky Creepy Freaky Pod. And if you have a favorite quirky, creepy, or freaky animal fact, send it on in at Quirky Creepy Freaky Pod at gmail.com. Audio editing and recording is done by me, Olivia Strait. The intro music was created by Kaylee Strait. Thank you for listening. <laughs>